Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is a very inspiring entrepreneur, Tim Schumacher, one of the partners at SaaS Group, one of the co-founders who we're super excited to see here. Uh, this is going to be our 50th episode of SaaS Unbound, and we thought, who's the best person to do this and to kind of mark the end of the first season. And of course, Tim, uh, I think it would be amazing to talk with you, to learn how you built SaaS group and how you see the SaaS industry overall. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hey, hey, Anna. And thanks for giving me the, the home game here. Um, <laughs> And, or the cliffhanger, depending on how you yeah. find it for the next season. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, super excited to, to see you here because uh, just a couple of months back, we've announced this uh, incredible new vision for SaaS Group, where we're inevitably growing to become one of the biggest SaaS platforms worldwide. So before we get there, how did we get here, let's dig into your uh, background a little bit. Maybe talk about how SaaS Group was born. Yeah, sure. Um, so SaaS Group was born about six six years ago, and um, for me, it was uh, it was kind of a mix of things. I've been an entrepreneur all my life, so I started coding as a teenager, and then started with some games and then started a company called Cedo, a domain marketplace, which, which I ran for, for 10 years. And then uh, that was all many years ago, but then kind of fast forward to six years ago, I had been dabbling a, a lot with angel investments, um, also started one or two other companies, which I just didn't run, but had someone else run it. And I, I figured at some point there was, I run into so many great founders who have reached, um, like a, a multi-million uh, dollar business and yet they are more like early stage builders. And I've discovered over the years that I'm actually okay at building early stage stuff, but not great. Um, I, but I'm really good at scaling things and taking things which are already at a certain level and then putting some structures around it and scaling it to a decent size. And, and that's when I put the two things together and thought like, Hey, you know, we should do something where we acquire all those excellent, uh, mostly bootstrap startups and try to bring it to the next level. And also in a very founder friendly way, because I've been part of many acquisitions over the years. And a lot of them have just gone terribly wrong because people who have no understanding of, of how this should work to try to acquire businesses. And I think you have to be an operator to a certain extent. And so that's kind of, it was an idea. And then it just started with one project. I acquired my first project and then one after the other came to being and suddenly that flywheel started flying and before we knew it we're now at the stage where we have over 200 people and 15 uh, brands and it's actually a real company but that's that's kind of the founding story in a nutshell yeah okay it sounds amazing so um what was the first company that that you acquired and why uh why it you know, how did you come to this founder friendly and what kind of uh, requirements did you have at the first place? So the first business we acquired was DeployBot. We bought it from another actually very cool software company uh, called Wildbit. By the way, uh, the CEO of the company, Natalie, you should have her in the podcast as well. 
uh, running, like running, and I'm mentioning that because Wildbit is also run culturally in, in a very, very similar way than I think Sasquatch runs, very remote, very friendly, uh, collaborative culture. Um, and I think actually this is important uh, to, to look for culture because it's much easier to integrate something with a similar culture. And so Deploybot had that culture. It was a very techie product. Um, and the idea was that, um, we take this over in this case, very soon after the acquisition with our own team. And I, I kind of did it not because of the topic, but despite the topic, I'm not a deployment expert. Um, my coding skills are like 20 years old and my deployments was like an FTP upload and it was not really a product. And that I noticed actually a little bit after buying it, I noticed, oh, I should actually know more about the product. Um, which is when I asked my friend Ulrich, who is much more into product and tech than I am, is like, Hey, you want to do this with me? Um, and then yeah, acquiring this, that first project, which is still with us. And it's a, it's a very fine little deployment tool, um, which serves a very particular niche. And I think that's exactly the type of project, uh, we're looking for, like something which does something really well in a particular niche, which, uh, we can then take and try to take to the next level. Okay. So, uh, coming back to your background, you said that you've had your own companies, you tried to uh, build them and grow them. And at a certain point you understood that your mindset is not a builder is not a starter, but a rather a taker to the next level, <laughs> an upgrader of the product. Yeah. I think a lot of founders find themselves at this position. So how to understand that maybe this is not for me, I'm not really an early stage founder, but I would rather maybe become a CEO, become a, a co-founder at a later stage, later in the startup days. Yes, I think every person is different. And um, some people actually like that, uh, that CEO role. Um, and I think that's the one thing which is no matter what type of business you have, it's kind of universal. The more you grow, the more you become a manager or a CEO and the less you are an actual builder. So your time actually coding, talking to clients, all of that kind of goes down while the time managing things, building structures and actually running uh, yeah, an organization more than a product that uh, in increases and that's just not for everyone. And so that's what a lot of early builders realize after a few years, they're like, oh yeah, they miss the excitement of building a new product because at some point it's a lot of incremental gains, which are equally important. Like the good thing with a later stage company is that if you do a little change, it has a, often a very big impact on thousands of clients or hundreds of thousands of users. And you, you don't have that in the early stage, but on the flip side, like you miss a lot of the excitement of the early days of building something new. And, um, and I think it's, that's really, to me, that's the core is, is everybody should listen to him or herself is like, what am I really good at and how can I leverage those skills? And that's, I guess that's something which we all do multiple times during our career, but it's, I think that was for me, that was one of those things, which, which really prompted me to go back from pure angel investments and dabbling with super early stage things into this roll up uh, mode, which we have at SAS Group. Right. Makes sense. Okay. And it's great that you mentioned what with deploy board culture was one of the things that you also noticed that was important for you when you bought it. So, and a lot of founders and a lot of PE companies kind of neglect that 
culture is not important. We can always, you know, change it. We can always put people back into the office or right. tell them we're going fully remote and we're not meeting anymore. So it's, it's a very free flowing thing, but how did you come to it in the first place? Was it just an intuition that, you know, you saw a company that was working well, had a great culture and you kind of thought, okay, this is something that I want to do and it will be easier if we acquire it, you don't really have to install any new values or is it something that, okay, this went great and now I want more of that and I will kind of now work on other companies implementing the same ideas and values? Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I mean, when we look at every founder we talk to, every project we look at at SaaS Group, we look at a lot of factors. We look at, okay, like from the first, from the first, yeah, first look as a customer, so to say. So a very superficial look down to kind of how are things coded, the quality of the tech stack to many little different things. And culture is one of them. And we generally just try to uh, work with founders who are similar to how we believe a company should be run because it's much easier to integrate it at the end of the day. Otherwise, you know, you create those different silos and um, people just don't have the same set of values. And so I think it's both, but at the same time, if after we've acquired DeployBot and it worked well, we were like, okay, let's look for similar projects who have also very small team, bootstrapped. We really like to work with bootstrapped founders. At the same time, we, over the time, also had quite a few great projects which we acquired, which had VC money. So that also works, but we like the bootstrapped mindset. There, for example, VC finance startups who, where the founders have preserved that bootstrap mindset, being kind of frugal, being very down to earth, hands-on and that's just a cultural mindset we like a lot because we think that it's a great dna for running a company and uh, yeah so i think it, it all boils down to the fact that it's much easier to to acquire something which is similar in terms of values and culture right okay and uh, this is exactly what i tell people when they ask like why bootstrap why remote culture and I like, well, this is just way easier. You know, why look for some very difficult integrations? Why looking for the high road of changing something at the core when you can just take something that works really great, that is very similar to what you're trying to build and <clears throat> basically do a lot less, take an easier road of just implementing, making sure that people are very comfortable without virtually changing anything. Mm. Yeah, right. It's, I mean, it's hard for people to change. If you're, for example, like if you compare two different cultures, there are some companies which are very sales driven. So like the classic, there's a sales department in one room, they ring the bell when they make a sale. It has some advantages arguably, but it's, for example, it wouldn't be our culture. The remote culture uh, has uh, a lot more process, but also sometimes less, it's of course has less personal interactions, but it also has a lot more personal responsibility and freedom. And so if, if you try to combine those two cultures uh, on the extremes, it can be very messy because then people just don't understand each other. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's just better if people see eye to eye. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So it's founder friendly, right? And from what I've learned and from what I see, it's also team friendly, right? So we take the companies as is without really changing them, without changing the product, without the plan to reform everything and fire the people and just 
put the people we think would be better because companies came to this position mm -hmm. with the people that's uh, that are working with them, right? So they are already doing a great job, right? But the, at the same time, the products are standalone products. So right. why this kind of strategy? Why not try to integrate and a lot of products in SaaS group have kind of overlaps where they could do cross marketing or maybe even integrate into each other. Why are you keeping them as is? So I think we do a little bit of both. So yes, we're striving for the power of the team. And the reason is, I think Amazon's Jeff Bezos has coined it once as the two pizza rules that, and I agree with that, the most effective teams are actually small teams. I've seen so many teams balloon to 50 or 100 people, and they're often less productive than uh, high performance teams of 10 people. And so that's why we want to keep responsibility with the teams. As you say, like the, people have gotten somewhere with the team. So we, we trust people, which doesn't mean that we don't do any changes. I mean, so when we look at the business, we look at things and it's like, hey, you know, yeah, generally we buy you because we trust you. But, you know, we suggest these changes and because we have so many different projects and so many different benchmarks, we tend to make good recommendations based on data. And that's often very helpful to a founder, which might just seize this one business he or she runs. And so we do a little bit of changes, but then yes, when we do those changes, we try to do them also in a nice way. And then we try to weave in some synergies, but only very lightly, because I think a lot of companies, when they acquire businesses, they vastly overestimate synergies. They say, oh, you know, we can pay a, a huge premium for this business because we can suddenly sell that product to some other audience. But that's usually like a lot harder than it looks on paper. So yes, we can do those things, but generally we, yeah, we believe that because most of the projects are niche projects, they, they're also better kind of run in that way and left somewhat independent. Again, having said that, that we have central teams. So we have central teams for marketing, DevOps, HR, finance, and a lot of the things which, which are like, where there, there's no differentiating factor for the business itself, because like, I don't know if you run a Google ads account, for example, like if you are a real expert in that, you can run it like for every business. It doesn't have to be part of a brand or take HR or finance. Like we have certain standards. It's those are well-run machines. And then we don't need to have that within the brands. But, but when it comes to product, to customer service, customer success, Technology, all of that is, is within the brands and that's where it belongs. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Absolutely. Okay. And just one thing that also I 
came to admire is that, yes, those are standalone products and the core decisions about the products come from the brands themselves, but also that there is a huge knowledge sharing and I now call it standalone products, but not standalone people. So right. like you said, they don't have to just look very straight into the product that they are building. They have the knowledge and the expertise from others and the benchmarks that they could use. So again, a bit of a different approach to a few other PE companies that I've researched. Why did you decide to do that? Why not just say, okay, th there are a few benchmarks to follow, a few metrics that are very important to us. Uh, you have your amazing team and you're on your own as a standalone product, as a standalone company. Why bring people that could tie every brand together and show them what else there could be done? Yeah, I think the answer to the why is because we just don't think the classic PE model would work in this case. Um, I mean, the very classic model is in PEs, you have usually bigger companies, they're acquired purely on a financial basis. And I hope the PEs among the listeners, forgive me, but the people who tend to be at the helm of that, they usually don't know how to run a product. They look at it from a financial standpoint and that works well. I think this is a huge industry which delivers real value. They also make good changes sometimes, but also it's done on a usually much bigger scale. So most PEs started at I mean, 10 million would be a small deal for them, 10 million annual recurring revenue, and the sky is the limit. But the reason why we've done the smaller model is because we felt it's an underserved model. It's a lot of founders, as I said in my founding story, a lot of founders have built great niche products with a few million revenues. We look for companies between usually one and five million revenues can be a little smaller if they are growing fast it can also be a little bigger between five and ten is also fine but our sweet spot tends to be in this kind of three four five million dollar range and that's an underserved market nobody acquires those companies because most pe say oh this is too small but with those with a shared central services model uh, but still a lot of independence for the teams. We feel it's just the perfect fit for this uh, size of company and we're delivering real values to founders who otherwise would be stuck or even handcuffed, you could say, to, to their businesses. Uh, maybe anecdotally, I mean, we've looked at a lot of founders who are tremendously successful. They have businesses which sometimes make a million profit a year or more, yet they cannot take a single day of vacation because they are like the main customer service person. And that's, to me, that's, th that, that would be like prison. It's like, if everything depends on yourself, that can be very strenuous for their life. And uh, yet there is nobody who, who buys those companies very often. And then we try to take it to the next level. Sometimes the founder stays and is like, Hey, now you focus on product. You can also take vacations. You can rest like vacation is important, rest your mind and develop new ideas, but then you can also go back in, but also, you know, we make sure that the business keeps running and you're not like the main customer service person in the business. And it's really interesting how often that actually happens that people cannot let go of their business. And it speaks of the dedication of founders. I mean, it's great. I have a lot of respect for that, but it's, it also, I think people sometimes are in this hamster wheel. They're not even realizing that actually it's a hamster wheel. And, uh... Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, there, there are some great success stories that, that we have that I absolutely love with the founders that never expected 
to stay, never expected to find another role in their own company, right? But, yeah. but grew to love how it could work for them and still, you know, foresee how the product is going to be developed, yeah. where it's going to go. So work in something they love, but in, in a different, in a different role. So that's about flexibility that SaaS Group offers, right? And what right. other, so this is, you know, one of the reasons that the founders could seek an exit, right? Being in the, this hamster yeah. wheel, not really being able to do anything else apart from the business. What other reasons do you see for selling the companies that, you know, you've experienced over the years? I mean, lots we've, so maybe it starts, I mean, it starts with financial security. I think we've also seen, I mean, there are those founders who take, uh, have a million in profits every year, but that's rare. Um, but we also have founders who have worked super hard for 10 years on their business, but it's not churning a profit and they don't really know how, but yet they're sitting on this huge assets asset, uh, making millions of revenues. And we know that with a few little tweaks, we can get it to a good profit level, which is why we can also, uh, pay a few million for it. And then of course, the difference between not having money and having a few millions is huge, is a huge impact to your life, needless to say. And so of course. This financial stability is rightfully very important to founders. A lot of them have started a family, for example, or they want to buy a house or yeah, very often they've really lived frugal and paid themselves a small salary only for many years. And then it's at some point they want to earn the fruits of their work. And that's, yeah, that, that's very often what they started things for. So I think that's the other reason is very often, yeah, as I said earlier, is people, people want to go back to building something new. So they feel like, Hey, they filled this fantastic SaaS project for the last six, seven or 10 years, but they want to go into a new area. It was blockchain for a while. So we had founders who were like, Hey, I don't want to be stuck in SaaS blockchains where everything is happening these days. It would be AI or it'd be climate other areas where people are, okay, I want to. I just want to do something very different. I mean, a lot of founders are curious minds, are engineers, are builders. And for builders, being stuck with one topic can be very strenuous. For us, by the way, it's very exciting because we see new projects and we buy new projects every few weeks. So, so we keep our mind fresh, but uh, for them, it's like one business they've been doing for years. And so that's a reason. Sometimes also life changes. So people have, we've, we've had people where, for example, there are two founders, one of them doesn't want to do it anymore. And then, you know, you have this life changing event where they reconsider, okay, we've been two founders building this for many, many years. Now, what do we do? And then it prompts them to think about changes or people have family changes, whether it's having children, whether that's a relocation, whether that's sick parents, which makes them reconsider their lives. It's I've seen all sorts of reasons and every reason is legitimate. So it's, I think it's, for me, it's always one of the first questions I ask in every founder call is like, why do you sell? And I want to hear the honest opinion. I don't want to hear what the broker says. The brokers always, they have their standard phrases on why the seller wants to sell. I want to real hear the real personal story because that's the only way how we can also tailor an offer and tailor a way forward to the personal life circumstances. And to, to us, that's really important because only then it can work. Like if, if we tell a founder, Hey, you know, you have to be, you have to have a three year earnout, and the founder wants to leave within the next three months because he's burned out like those two things don't match and we want to do both. We want to have the founder who wants to leave within three months uh, and be able to make him or her a good offer and the founders who want to stay uh, with us and 
maybe just focus on a different role or even their same role, just with a bit more financial security uh, for many years to come. Both of that is fine. We can work with either. Absolutely. Okay. That's fascinating. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, we buy new companies very often and I've experienced it firsthand because it joined just a, uh, a little over half a year ago and I've already seen three companies being acquired. Mm. That's super fast. What is the biggest challenge of acquiring these companies? Because it's not just due diligence, right? We have the streamlined process, so everything is pretty fast. What is the biggest challenge when they are already on board? When they're already on board. So, I mean, there are a lot of challenges before we get them on board from finding the right people to then actually negotiating a price. Very often the price expectation is, is the single biggest problem. Um, you know, founders oh, read yeah. of, uh, read of, I don't know, Figma got acquired for 20 billion by Adobe. And then they kind of compare numbers and see like, okay, this is like a 40 X multiple or something on revenue. And so seeing that, like what is realistic in the small cap market space. So very often that's, but once we have them on board, then there's the technical due diligence or the general due diligence, technical due diligence, financial due diligence. So after, after we have a general agreement, which is a letter of intent, which is usually unbinding, but signed by both sides. And we view it as a handshake agreement. So for us, and there are a lot of companies who are like, okay, we just issue an LOI and then we figure out the rest later and we renegotiate things for us. An LOI is basically, we look the founder in the eye and it's like handshake. And if, you know, if we don't discover that some corpse in your basement, literally speaking, or figuratively speaking, then, you know, this is a deal. And the majority of the deals also then work through and we don't renegotiate because, you know, I mean, unless again, we find some stuff, which is fundamentally different to what we saw earlier. Um, and then this phase is for us is really important because and now coming back to your original question on once they are on board, like the phase of discussing with them, how should a deal work and what is, how is the due diligence done? That's a very important prep, prep phase for later, because we learn a lot of things about the business. We learn about the good things, but also the bad things, and we can make recommendations on how it is to move forward. And those can be changes to the business. I mean, sometimes we do have to trim the team a little, as you said earlier, we don't go and bring in our own team and say, we can do everything better, but we sometimes have to make certain tweaks to the business. And that can sometimes also mean, for example, letting a few people go, or it can mean product changes or price changes or things like that. And we like to have an open discussion because we don't want to have a business and then hit the founder with a surprise. We want to have those discussions beforehand. Okay. All right. And how is it going with integration of all the people inside? Because again, sure, standalone products, but we do bring our central team to look at it. We do want people, you know, there is, there is a retreat coming, SaaS grouping, where we all come together, 200 people in one place trying to, you know, understand who's who and who's that person that, you know, you saw behind the screen so many times, how do you deal with integration of people? How do you make sure that everyone feels like, you know, we call ourselves SaaS family, you know, it says family right. on the website. How do you, yeah. How do you make yeah. sure it's a family? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's, we try to keep this fine balance between independence of the team, but still 
an overall belonging with joint communications channels. It starts with things like uh, Slack and common databases where people find their information um, to um, what you just mentioned, the yearly SaaS grouping, where we bring them in together for one week to just get to know each other and have a good time. Also, of course, learn a bit about the company, but primarily get to know each other. We also have a lot of, obviously, being a remote company, a lot of digital formats, I mean, starting with this, with SaaS Unbound, but also the SaaS Academy, where we have internal, external speakers to certain topics. Um, and then, and I think that's probably the most important thing is actually working together. So, for example, the marketing team then working with a brand and is like, okay, hey, you should do these or that, that those tweaks. And if people notice that they work with smart people, that's the best that's the best thing to actually integrate because then they want more and they, people will actually start working together. So our, in our belief, yeah, actually just completing successful projects together is actually the best community or family building you can have because you can achieve certain things, you celebrate successes and you, yeah, you learn a lot in that way. And, um, and that's what we strive. Sure. Yeah, I think it, it also builds a great deal of trust because like you said, you integrate a new brand and they have their own ways to do something. And we go in with our resources and our vision, maybe tweaking something and if it goes well and, you know, it's great for the brand, then absolutely. I think they start to value, you know, what they got themselves into and they want more. And of course you want to share what's going on. Absolutely. All right. So a few more questions that I wanted to ask. Again, this hasn't been a very easy year for startups, for businesses. A lot of them are saying, you know, it's not a great year to sell a business. It's just a year to regroup, to make sure you're profitable, to go back to the basics, to find your market, sorry, product market fit. But on the other hand, you know, we see a lot of deals are being done. What do you think? Is it a good year to sell or can we actually find a good or a bad year to sell? Or it's just, you know, it depends on something else, not just the overall economical situation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit to both. So there's never the perfect time to sell. I mean, if you in retrospect know that, you know, you would be a stock trader and do picking at the right times. So I think it can always be a good time to sell. Yes, maybe the prices are not as crazy as two years ago, but at the same time, you still get reasonable prices. And in this segment of profitable small startups, the prices haven't changed that much. Like the crazy prices, they were on the stock market, in SPACs, in VC, but not in the micro acquisition space. And so actually, you know, if, if for those of you who want to dig in deeper, Dirk, head of origination, he has a great newsletter called SAS FYI, where he just, I think is just his last episode was around this topic. Is this a bad time? And, and, and he phrased this really nicely also kind of with some actual multiples. So I would suggest everyone to look into this, but the TLDR of this is that the time needs to be right for you as a person more than I think trying to time the market. And I would reiterate that advice. And if, you know, you feel that this year, you know, you're burned out or you want to do something different or whatever, it's still a good time to initiate the conversation. And sometimes it might be that, that we or other acquirers say, Hey, you know, if you want to reach this price, then you have to grow by whatever 30% or something. And then you at least know where you are and you can come back a year later or something. Um, I think it's always worth having the conversation, even if you decide to not sell now, but sell in a year. But generally, I wouldn't try to time the market. It's just kind of in vain. Okay. 
All right, not feasible. Cool. You know, a question that I always ask, what's so far the biggest win and the biggest failure? The biggest win and the biggest failure. I mean, staying in the SaaS context, let's see, I don't want to name any particular projects here and make them feel too good or too bad, but like we've had, uh, it, it, that's the interesting thing with so many projects. I mean, we had ones where we thought, you know, they're going to be great and they just turned out that it doesn't work. But I think it's very rare. Like most of the cases we can actually add value and grow the business, but we had one or two were like stagnating or even going down and we couldn't do anything about it. We just uh, had wrong assumptions about the market. But then we had other ones where we were like, even on the defense of saying, hey, uh, should we buy this business? They're like, I don't know, a big risk of Google or some of the other big GAFA companies of doing something. And they turned out like fantastic. And we 5X their revenue within two years. And, and so I think it's, that's the cool thing about SaaS uh, Group is that we've seen, we're seeing both and we have a lot of successes and a lot of failures as well. And that's, that's about entrepreneurship, I would say. So that's the fun thing about doing what we do. A bumpy ride of, of SaaS. All right. And just one more. What is the hack that you could share with the founders that could help them if they want to get acquired? What is something that usually works to, you know, in initiating the first calls or building a goodwill or even, you know, making sure that the asking price is something very reasonable and actually achievable? Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't say there's this one hack, like this brilliant hack. It's like with everything else in, in, in businesses, like you, you you do a decent preparation. So for example, like a lot of founders can come super unprepared. So I think it's good to just have your basic numbers ready to have them somewhat sorted. Yeah. Just that there's a good appearance of your overall business and then just do a few conversations without like immediately, without immediately like offering the business for sale. It's a lot is about just trying to find out to, to educate yourself. And so have a few conversations with people who are acquirers to feel out what they want and just be like, Hey, I want to have an open conversation. Can you tell me about this and that? And most people are willing to do this and then like regroup and form your mind. And then, so to say, have product market fit for an acquisition, because there's also a product market fit. If the product, in this case, the company doesn't fit the market, in this case, the acquirers, then there's no deal but to learn first. So, I, so yeah, my, maybe that one hack would be to just approach it as you would approach product market fit, talk to a few people before, you know, you make your offering and then, and then actually go to market with, and do that rather instead of, I don't know, go into some broker and let that person figure out everything because that's usually not working. Um, okay. I think that's an incredible one. Not a lot of people approach it that way. Okay. Well, Tim, it's been incredible talking with you. I think founders who ever want to sell their business or just look into it had great insights and some hands-on advice here. And yeah, thanks so much for the conversation. Looking forward to working together <laughs> even more. Yeah. And yeah, take care. Cool. Thank you very much. And yeah, looking forward to the next 50 episodes. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at 
or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.